most people think, and I'm embarrassed to say I was one of them, that, oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's common and I know someone who's died by suicide, but it won't, it won't hit my family. And that's what we thought. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. Last year, more than 47,000 Americans took their own lives. As we all worry about gun violence, nearly two-thirds of the deaths by gun are suicides. And suicide is the second leading cause of death globally among young people. Often people take their lives because of untreated depression or other mental illness. But in many cases, there are no discernible answers for why someone killed themselves. And the real question is how do family members carry on after a suicide? which has even more layers of grief and shock than another death. Dr. Jennifer Ashton, the chief medical correspondent for ABC News and a prominent physician with a private practice, has come as close to that answer as anyone. On February the 11th, 2017, her ex-husband, Robert, a 52-year-old thoracic surgeon, jumped to his death from the George Washington Bridge, which links New York and New Jersey. Just two weeks earlier, they had finalized an amicable divorce. It fell to Jennifer to tell their 17-year-old daughter and 18-year-old son what had happened. In the time since, Jennifer and her children have traveled in a land no one wants to visit, a world reordered by the fact that a loved one chose to leave it. And having made a career of explaining often difficult medical issues to her patients and viewers, Jennifer came to understand how she could lift some of the stigma of suicide and relieve some of the pain of other families. So she's written a new book called Life After Suicide, finding courage, comfort, and community after unthinkable loss. Jennifer Ashton, welcome to TBD. Thanks, Tina. Jennifer, nobody really wants to be the poster family for surviving a suicide. And at first you were reluctant to speak, much less write a book. What really changed your mind? And, and, uh, and really, I have to say, was this your therapy, writing this book? Um, the short answer, I think it present tense. I think it is still my therapy because, of course, I don't, I'm only just over two years into this. Um, I hate to use the word journey, but whatever you want to call it, process the rest of my life, really. So um, I'm by no means an expert at this. Um, but one of the things that was so hard about this, Tina, and you know, you know me well, is that as a physician, and one with a very public role, I'm so much more comfortable being the one giving the help than getting the help. Yeah. And so speaking about my ex-husband's suicide in a massively public way 
was literally the last thing that I wanted to do until um, I felt compelled to do it. And what made you compelled? I mean, was it people talking to you or feeling that there were myths about it that made you want to nope. share the story? It, it was re- so specific. It was Kate Spade's suicide um, and my children. And as you probably remember, when Kate Spade's suicide hit the news, uh, it was a Tuesday in June. And it was just over a year after my ex-husband's suicide. And I was actually about to get on a plane to speak at an event in L.A. And I was it was June, at, remember, so my children, Alex and Chloe, who are now 19 and 20, were with me at the time. They were already finished with school for the year, and they, they often travel with me. And I was literally boarding the plane, and I got a call from a senior producer at Good Morning America asking me if I would feel comfortable talking about my family's experience with suicide in light of Kate Spade's suicide on GMA the next day. And, I mean, it... <laughs> It kind of really blindsided me, Tina, because speaking about it publicly, I had not done before. And I realized that in order to speak about it publicly, of course, I would have to, you know, kind of relive a lot of the very, very painful events and and emotions that we had gone through personally. So I said, let me talk to the kids and get their feeling, because if they weren't okay with it, there was no way I was going to do it. And so I hung up and I asked them and they said, yeah, mom, you have to do it. You have to talk about this. So many people are going through this and and they need to hear from someone like you how, how it is. And so I did and it was incredibly hard, but it kind of opened up the floodgates, Tina, and I heard from all of these people on – my Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and emails to my office and texts from people I know saying, um, you know, that was so brave. Meanwhile, I didn't feel brave. I, right. I felt like I can't believe I just did that. And I felt like the antithesis of brave, actually. And then they said, you know, you used your platform to help shine a light on the people who are suffering in the shadows. And someone said that to me, and I'll never forget the impact that that had on me. One of the sort of bad things about being famous, of course, is that people opine as well much more freely about a famous person than one that isn't. And some of the media portrayed uh, your divorce from your husband as the cause of his death. Right. Uh, How did you you ignore those kind of headlines? Because that must have been painful to read that. Well, I mean, first of all, that that was on the nice end. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were some horribly ugly and, you know, disgusting things written about me on social media, like you pushed him, you have his blood on your hands. Oh, God. This is what happens when a woman divorces her husband. And my children saw every single one of those comments and unfortunately were put in the position of, having to protect their mother instead of what I was trying to do, which was protect them. And, you know, all I'll say is that we were in so much pain because of our loss that those hurtful and ugly comments didn't even move the needle for us. I actually think we all felt really, really sorry for those people who would write something like that. But I think on a very, very superficial level, 
it does need to be emphasized that divorce does not cause suicide. Most people get divorced and most people do not kill themselves. Um, you know, having a breakup does not cause someone to take their own life. Uh, losing their job doesn't. You know, this is a, a symptom of untreated mental illness. And yes, events can kind of trigger a feeling of hopelessness and despair. But I mean, any MD, any psychiatrist, any mental health professional will tell you that um, it's not, It's unfortunately, it's not that simple. Well, of course, when somebody kills themselves, you as the survivor do become a sort of detective, don't you? I mean, there are so many unanswered questions and you try to piece together the last hour's life. What did I miss? What didn't I see? Um, usually there are no witnesses. So you really have to sort of conjure up from the facts that you have what that person did prior to killing themselves. Did you obsess about the last day of Robert's life? And, and what did you what did you come to the conclusion when you were sort of thought and thought and thought and, and talked to people about it? I mean, first of all, the day before he killed himself, he and I were texting each other. And three days before he killed himself, we were standing at our daughter's ice hockey game together. So I didn't have that much piecing together to do. But I, of course, asked myself the same questions that anyone friend, relative of someone who dies by suicide asks themselves. And it it is part of the self-blame and guilt. You know, what did I miss? What could I have done? For me, it was a zillion times worse because I'm a doctor and I lived with this man for 22 years. And so, and he didn't have any of the classic signs of untreated depression um, so he hit it really well. But I instead went back to connect the dots. And the only thing that I was able to kind of, I guess, the epiphany that I had in doing that, which, by the way, one survivor to another, I definitely do not recommend because the person who can answer those questions, unfortunately, is no longer alive. So it's really unproductive. I... You know, in 2012, Rob abruptly left his career as a cardiothoracic surgeon with no discussion with me or anyone else. And when it happened, I was in a state of shock because I became the sole financial supporter of our family. And I was so shocked and blindsided by it that I was just focused on trying to keep the ship afloat. What was his explanation to you? Oh, great question. He he said that he just couldn't handle operating on people who were ultimately going to die of their disease. It was too upset, emotionally upsetting for him. And, you know, to, from my standpoint, and, and you need to understand that to, for someone to become a cardiothoracic surgeon, it is four years of medical school and eight to nine years of post-medical school training. You know, this is decades of work. And by the way, there are only about 4,000 board-certified cardiothoracic surgeons in the country. So it's like the top of the top. You just don't walk away from that. And when he did that, I kind of remember thinking to myself, you know, as our kids would say, WTF. Like, yeah. wh what yes. is going on? And... My answer, I'll tell you, was not, oh, this is untreated depression. My answer was just, 
what is going on? I had no no explanation for it. And then after that, that was 2012, I felt like he was pulling away from me and our marriage. And of course, well, I shouldn't say of course, but as a woman who tends to kind of put everything, both success and failures, rise and fall on my shoulders and my back, my my feeling during that time was, I guess he doesn't love me anymore. You know, something must be wrong with me. But I guess he's just pulling away. And he and then after we went through over a year of um, marriage counseling, I remember our therapist saying, you know, you're you have unreconcilable differences. You just have your kids in common. You should call your lawyers. And by the way, there was no fighting. There was no, you know, animosity. It was very amicable. But I remember the day, Tina, where I said, well, I guess it's over. I, you know, I think we should end our marriage. And his response then, just as it kind of was when he walked away from his career in surgery, was, okay. Almost so, as if he just got a kind of uh, detachment from his own life. Right. Mm-hmm. Almost like a, a, he became like a nihilist. And I, so I, I still didn't connect those dots, though, Tina. I didn't say, oh, he walked away from his career as a surgeon. He is pulling away from our marriage. It was only after he killed himself that I realized he was pulling away from life. Yeah. And I didn't see that. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next. Because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now, one of the things that's so tough, of course, when you lose... A, a partner like that, a spouse, is that you are required to be very strong for your children just at the time when you're feeling at your most vulnerable and they need you and it's very hard for you all to be grieving and in pain at the same time. How did you deal with that? And had they seen anything about their father that made them feel something was afoot? No, they they saw nothing. I mean, Rob was an amazing father. Um, they saw, on the contrary, actually, they saw what we were so proud of calling an evolved divorce. They saw two people who were kind and respectful to each other in divorce as we had been in marriage. And they never saw any any of the red flags of untreated mental illness. When he died, 
Chloe was 17, Alex was 18, he was a freshman at um, Columbia. My only focus, the minute I heard until today, and I'm sure forever, was keeping my stuff together so that they didn't feel like they were losing both parents. Because I knew, I think intuitively, even though I've subsequently learned this from our therapist, that if children lose one parent, accident, illness, suicide, divorce, it doesn't matter, and then the other one decompensates, they have a complete lack of security because they now have no adult parent figure in their world to lean on. And there was no way I was going to let that happen. And um, so it was really hard, but that was my only focus. And one of the themes that you stress in your book is that, you know, you had the appearance you felt of a perfect life. Um, It wasn't just something you strove for. You said, well, you you did really have a perfect life. Tell, Tell me about that. I think that was, for me, the biggest life lesson I learned through Rob's suicide was that I had strived for perfection for myself as a means to deal with unresolved pain that I had from my childhood of my parents going through a divorce when I was very young. And so that was my coping response to that childhood trauma was set the bar high, try to be perfect, achieve a lot, and it will bring you your father's love and support and acknowledgement and attention and all these things. And when Rob killed himself, I use the analogy in my book, Life After Suicide, that I became like a shattered plate. And as I tried to heal from that trauma of losing my children's father, losing the person that I had been married to for 22 years, the only way for the plate to be glued back together again was to glue together all the ugly pieces, all the jagged edge pieces, all the imperfect pieces. And now the plate has a lot of glue and it's not shiny and perfect looking on the outside, but it's intact. And in some ways, I feel like that plate, meaning my psyche, my my inner core is stronger than it was before because to rebuild myself, I had to accept the imperfections. All, yep, yes. Yep. Absolutely. There's a stigma attached to suicide, um, unfairly. Were your children ever sort of embarrassed by his death, not willing to discuss it openly? And, and what about your other family members? How did you guide them through this process? You know, I think one thing I'll never forget, Tina, is um, a couple of days after Rob died when I had hundreds of people come to my apartment to comfort us and, and pay their respects, one of my patients, actually, who's baby I had delivered over 10 years ago whose husband died by suicide when he turned 40, came in and said to me, you know, you're going to feel like you have a scarlet letter on your chest. And instead of an A for adultery, it's it's an S for suicide. And everyone's going to look at you and, you know, it's going to be the only thing they see when they see you. And You know, that was a horrifying thing to hear. But I think my children and I um, fortunately haven't – we haven't noticed so much of that. We notice there's a lot of – 
there's a lot of there's still a lot of whispering about suicide and and we feel like until you can talk about something you can't ever fully address it um but i think the three of us especially my children really felt like the focus shouldn't be on how someone dies it should be on how they lived and um and that's how they have turned their lives into a real mission of honoring their father's spirit and, and not focusing on on the way he in which he died. Yeah. What do you think the words are not to say to someone who's lost a loved one to suicide? I mean, I know that, you know, if you have a friend who, who whose spouse or who's one of her family commits suicide, you know, you want to be consoling, but you don't know what right. to say. And I know that... Um, you know, I've heard that it can be very aggravating, for instance, if people say, I'm so angry with, you know, whoever it is because they decided just it was so selfish of them. And right. that is actually something that makes people very angry. What would you think is the right way to go about it? You know, what first of all, helpful? people said that to me. Yeah. Um, and it did not help. You're 100 percent correct. Um I think people don't know what to say. And it's one of the reasons that I interview other suicide survivors in my book because I wanted to hear from a whole bunch of people what their experiences have been like after they lost a loved one to suicide. And I heard a lot of the same things, you know, that there's if you don't know what to say, I always say you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything. You could just sit with the person or you could just hug the person. Um, But, you know, saying he was a coward or saying I'm so angry at him or how could he do that, that that does not help. I mean, at least for me, I felt very protective of Rob because I know how much he loved our children. And so for him to do what he did, he must have been in such profound pain that kind of it would be like you wouldn't yell at someone who died of cancer. (laughs) And so I think that it's easier to say what you shouldn't say than what you should. I and I and I think that just being with someone is probably oftentimes the kindest easiest thing to do. What is so uh unsettling though is that suicide in the US has gone up a stunning 30% in the last 20 years. What do you attribute this suicide epidemic to? Well, the caveat, of course, is that I'm not a mental health professional, even though I'm a physician. And my per- my family's personal experience with suicide has far from made me or us experts. But um, my opinion on that is probably twofold. One is that people don't have access or um, they can't take that first step to get professional help. And a lot of times that might be that they lack the resources or the access, which is a huge problem in this country. Believe it or not, there's only half a million trained mental health professionals in the country. Wow. That's, I mean, inc- how, that's incredible. It's, I, there probably are more veterinarians than that, you know? I mean, I don't, but that's, that's obviously not enough, <laughs> you know? So access and resources are a problem. But the flip side... You know, I think is that people feel disconnected, and one of the one of the kind of risk factors for suicide, as I read in this incredible Newsweek article, was feeling like a burden to your circle and feeling like you don't belong. 
And the statistic that you gave, Tina, is shocking. But the statistic I think that's even more shocking is that according to the CDC, for every person who dies by suicide, which in 2017 in the U.S. it was 47,000 people, 135 people are directly affected by that person's suicide death. So that is over 6 million people in this country a year. It's a staggering number. Do you yourself fear that legacy of suicide? Do you feel, uh, you know, you do hear of families where there's a suicide in every generation? And I mean, how do you protect your children from that? I mean, we don't feel the that hanging over our heads. I, I worry about my children partially because they're growing. They have to go through the rest of their life with only one biologic parent. I think the way that we all are handling it is by understanding that follow-up professional therapy is a part of the rest of our lives. So just like if we had diabetes and we would always have to go for periodic checkups, that is how the three of us now are viewing therapy. And I think that that's really important and just I'm incredibly fortunate that, you know, we have the access to do that. Well, you've met a lot of people now who have lived with this awful, tragic uh, circumstance. One of the people you connected with is Jane Clemente, whose 18-year-old son Tyler took his life in 2010 when he was a freshman at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Tell me the story of of Jane since. You know, Jane's amazing because her son's death by suicide was a national story for quite some time um, because it involved cyberbullying, it involved LGBTQ bullying. Um, And she's an amazing woman. She really inspired me because as horrible as the experience that my children and I went through, I cannot conceive of anything worse than losing a child to suicide. And she took her grief and developed and started and runs the Tyler Clementi Foundation, which is directed to, you know, banish cyberbullying, bullying of all kinds. It has a a faith-based aspect that tries to reduce um, bullying in faith-based communities um, of all people, but in particular LGBTQ um, youth and, and adults. And so it's such a broad net that she has cast Um, but with a particular focus on cyberbullying. And she's found a way to save other lives, to do good in her son's name, to honor his spirit in the most wonderful way. And and she's just she she was so inspiring to me. And that's that's why I had to include her in the book. Do you think that when a a well-known person like a Kate Spade or an Anthony Bourdain kills himself, uh, does it help to bring the right kind of attention to the issue, or does it, in, you know, does it actually glorify it in some way? Probably a little of both. I think that in the way in which it helps, it it sends the message that mental illness does not discriminate. It's not how much money you have, or how famous you are, or how attractive you are, or how great your career is, or anything like that. It doesn't discriminate. That's how it helps, is that it shows people, wow, it can happen to him or her. It can happen to anyone. The way in which it hurts, I think, is if it's not covered properly um, you know, by the media and, and 
by that, largely, it's there need to be no details about the manner in which someone kills themselves. That is irrelevant. And that's part of the guidelines for, for journalists. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it's not followed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You use a term in your book that I actually hadn't heard before, complicated grief. Mm. What is that? Well, I have a lot of um, professional, psychologic, mental health terms in my book that I learned from our therapist. And complicated grief was one of the most important ones. Uh, And basically what it refers to is that if someone suffers a trauma like the losing a loved one to suicide, a friend, relative, whatever, and they don't process it appropriately, meaning, you know, not by anyone's timeline, although there is a timeline in psychology. You know, it's generally a year that if you're if you are not moving forward in some way a year after a tragedy like this, that is a sign of complicated grief, which means you've kind of put it into a ball, you've locked it away, you've said it's so painful, I cannot deal with it. And what the therapist will explain is that if you don't deal with it, it will deal with you. And that will manifest down the road with um, kind of exponentially worse. Uh, impacts on your life. And so um, I think that that's part of the reason why it's so important to get professional help. You're an OBGYN. So how much does postpartum depression um, pose a danger of suicide? Have you have you talked to new mothers who are feeling suicidal? Well, I've reported on it. It's, um, you know, my thank goodness, I've never had a patient after delivering about 1500 babies who was suicidal uh, due to postpartum depression. But untreated psychiatric illness is one of the top three causes of maternal mortality in the United States. And that could be postpartum psychosis or antepartum psychosis or depression. Um, It doesn't just have to happen after delivery, but it's a massive problem. And I think, again, if you if you're just starting to see an increase in awareness from midwives and OBGYNs to screen for it. But it, again, I can't emphasize it enough because it's a mood disorder, because it's a mental illness. You can't do a test for it. You can't do a blood test for it or a brain imaging test for it. Yet, if we can't see it, we don't take it as seriously, and that's killing people. You know, 30 years ago, I published in Vanity Fair the piece that William Styron wrote about his depression and his suicide attempts. And at that time, it sort of truly sort of broke a taboo. And here we are 30 years later. I don't feel that this uh, there's enough of a change over enough of a period of time. It's not right. It's better, obviously, than it was 30 years ago. But I don't really think it's that much different. I mean, we and, and also, you know, we're seeing, for instance, in Harriman, Utah, a town of just 40,000 people, seven students at the local high school kill themselves during the school year in 2018. 
I mean, what is happening? What is going on? I mean, it's it's youth. It's the second leading cause of death among American youth. It's physicians. It's veterans. It's LGBTQ youth and adults. I mean, there are a lot of kind of high-risk groups, but it's also the corporate executive. It's also the housewife. It's also the teacher or priest. Or I mean, it's. I, I think that we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable in order to fix this problem. Is it about the way we're living now, though? Do you think that the disconnection, for instance, of social media and, and digital isolation is playing a role in the escalating suicide I think, rate? Yeah, I think that might be a part of it. And I think that... Um, you know, maybe even feeling like we're in such an immediate gratification time in our history. Like we have to, if we want a result, we have to have it now. And a big problem is when you're in so much pain, saying to someone in a few weeks or months, you'll, this will all be much better. That's, that's not going to do it. They need to feel better immediately. And that's, and by the way, that's not wrong. They do need instant and immediate help. But I think that hardwiring of wanting it now is not helpful to someone who's in that kind of pain. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that you're so brave in, in featuring this as a topic is that most people think, and I'm embarrassed to say I was one of them, that, oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's common and I know someone who's died by suicide, but it won't, it won't hit my family. And that's what we thought. And so, you know, just kind of increasing awareness by learning about, you know, the process and what goes on afterwards and what went on before is part of helping to prevent it. You write something in the book that really stuck with me, that if you knew you and your Rob's story would end exactly the same way, you would still sign up for it again tomorrow because of everything that you've come away with. That's a very powerful message. Um, and really the best proof that there is life after suicide. Uh, did it take you time to come to that resolution? Totally. I mean, I think my new mantra, which I unfortunately didn't think of by when I was writing the book, I've kind of just come to it subsequently, is in order to heal, you have to feel. Mm-hmm. And I have felt the full range of highs and lows um, since Rob's death by suicide, which is just over two years. And I think hopefully we'll always be healing. I don't think there's ever an end point to healing. Um, But the rhyme that my therapist uses is, if you resist, it will persist. And I did not want the suffering that we all felt after Rob's suicide to persist. The pain will always persist because that's a reflection of our love for the person. But um, that process, that journey, that road, that path, you know, everyone will find their own roadmap. For me, talking to other people and hearing about how they experienced it was and continues to be really, really helpful. Um, But You know, I I have a a very wise patient who has a Ph.D. in education, and she said to me, very kind of Buddhist, I think, philosophy, she said, you know, life is not about avoiding pain. Life is about processing the pain that we all experience and learning from it and continuing to live through it. And that's 
that's how we feel right now. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for writing a book that's going to very much add to people's ability to process their pain. Uh, it was very generous of you to share this unbelievably tragic experience, but also to offer your insights that will help other people who are going through it right now. I also want to point out that any profits from your book will be donated to a suicide awareness foundation established in the name of your ex-husband, Dr. Robert Ashton. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Tina. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.